Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and in the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained, ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies, they take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You may be seated. Psalm 139 begins with the subtext for the choir director, a psalm of David. And this tells us who wrote it and when. It was David, king of Israel. And if he had a choir director, unless he had a traveling men's band, it's probably after he had ascended to the throne. And he wrote this psalm because he needed to remind himself of God's nearness. David was no stranger to problems, was he? (laughs) He had plenty of problems in his life, and he needed to remind himself and all the people of Israel why they needed to stay trusting the Lord and not give in to the cultural and political and the religious and the social pressures from those who hated God. Now, as we've gone through the Psalms, we've seen that theology directly influences our practice, doesn't it? So David reminds himself of sound theology so that he may have sound practice. And this is something believers throughout the millennia have done. 
David's doing here in Psalm 139 the very same thing that the psalmist did last week in Psalm 33. He's reminding the people who God is. He's reminding the people who, or what God has done and what he is still doing. And so he's saying, in effect, if these things are true about God, which they are, then there ought to be some things that are true about, uh, things that ought to be true in us because of them. So what, what theological truths does David bring to mind? In verses 1 to 6, you will see that God has a perfect perception of David. God has a perfect perception of David. In verses 7 to 12, God has a perfect presence in David's life. Verses 13 to 18, God exercises a perfect power over David. And then 19 to 24, God exercises a perfect prerogative in David. So first, God's perfect perception. And David kicks off this main idea when he says in verse 1, O Yahweh, O, o Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. Now, I didn't need a... Uh, theology degree to, to know what search means, what, what it means to search or, or to know, but what this text tells us is that in addition to God knowing everything in the cosmos, and, and, and he knows the atomic weight of the quasars 300 million miles from here. He knows the number of molecules and atoms in every grain of sand that covers the earth. God knows absolutely everything, but look at what the weight of this verse says. David is making this theology personal in saying, in addition to God knowing everything, what has God, or rather, who has God searched? Who has God known? David says, me. Oh, Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You must appreciate the value and the importance that David includes as that little personal pronoun right where, he, right where he does. The believer, little old you, little old Aaron, Tom, Brian, you, and every believer in here, you are the object of God's personal knowledge. God has searched you out. Can you say that along with David? That you are the object of his knowledge, of his investigation, of his searching and exploring and inquiring and his evaluation. God has searched you out. God knows you. And then in verse 2 to 4, David David elaborates. He's painting a picture of just how extensive and how God knows David, verse 2, God says that, David says that God knows his rising. God knows David's sitting. God knows his thoughts. Verse 3 says that God knows his ways. It says that you, you discern or, or uh, scrutinize my path. It has the idea of, of discernment. God knows his ways, his path, whether he's whether he's gone out on the job or in the palace or whether he's inside his house, God knows his ways. He's, he's more invasive than the, than the NSA. God knows everything about David. And, and you can even see this, um, uh, uh, verse 4, God even knows his words. 
some of you who are married, do you, do you ever have an uh, occasion where you begin a sentence and because your spouse knows you so well, she can fin- he or she can finish what you're saying? Well, guess what? God knows what you're going to say even before the, 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 the molecule of oxygen forms in your lungs to form a word. God knows you. Verse 5, David says that God knows him so well, it's as if he is encamped or, or besieged. One, one translation that I read said, uh, you hem me before and behind, and that just... That does not sound pleasant to have a to have a, 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 a hairstylist or a hair salonist so close to you. But the the the, the, the better word is is encamp or besiege. Um, he he is so near you. He is surrounding you in the same way that an invading army has surrounded a town that it is sieging, that it is trying, that it is uh, waiting to attack, that it is trying to take over. He feels surrounded by God like an army around Jerusalem. And David says, he continues, he says, he places his hand upon me. This, uh, it's not really the word for hand, it's the word for a palm. And, and the, the image is of, uh, maybe, maybe David was sitting at his table and he sees a little cricket uh, uh, crawling and he, and he takes his palm and he cups it over the cricket. And that cricket is now at the mercy of David. That cricket can't escape, David. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the word that David used. He places his palm over me to restrict me. He feels besieged. And with this intense nearness, God is watching his every move. He's discerning. He's scrutinizing his every move, his every word, his every thought. And, and David feels overwhelmed. So he says in verse 6, in a climax, he says, such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It is, it is too high. I cannot attain to it. In our, in our English, when we, when we use the word wonderful or awesome, we automatically kind of attach this, this positive, uh, uh, pleasurable sense of wonder and awe. But the way David uses this word, it means that he is absolutely startled. David is unsettled. He is alarmed. He's stunned. He, he, he potentially feels like he is, well, he does. He feels like he's trapped. He's frightened. And up until this point, we know David's a believer, but he, he's playing this ambiguous game. For, 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 the, for the sake of argument, he, he's, he's not showing his cards yet as to how he really feels about God. But uh, uh, he goes on in verse 4 to say that even before he forms and speaks a word, before it's on his tongue, God knows it all together. All together. And so David says, I'm, I'm speechless. I, I can't attain to this. I can't, I can't handle this. I can't process the magnitude with which God knows I me. Mean, I, I can't even fathom how that works. So then David surmises, okay, sure, God has this perfect knowledge, this perfect perception, but for the sake of argument, David surmises, can I hide from that perfect knowledge? Is it it possible to run from God? 
Is there a way that God could not be, uh, that, that I could place myself so that, I, that God is not near me to bring his perfect perception of me, his, his perfect knowledge and understanding of me to bear? So then in verse 7, David professes that now God actually does have a perfect presence. He asks, and, and this is rhetorically, he's not asking you, he's not expecting you to answer. He says rhetorically, where can I go from your spirit, speaking to God? Where can I flee from your presence? What's the answer? Nowhere. Nowhere. There's nowhere that he can go that God is not already there. No matter what David does, whether David himself flees or he's taken captive, and he's taken somewhere that he does not know, David will never, ever, ever be able to escape the presence of his God he cannot flee from God. But the thing is, is, he doesn't want to. But for the sake of argument, he's going down all the options. And so, verse 8 to 10, he throws out three suggestive directions that he go. He, he brings up let's see, the vertic- uh, vertical, it's been a long week, vertical, horizontal, and then he even suggests uh, turning off the lights. He says, first, and this is referencing uh, vertical, up and down. Being a, now, being a man of action, David knew the advantage of high ground, right? Being on top of a hill, you can see your enemy from very far away. Uh, that would give you time to, to, to consider your options. Do you, do you mount an attack? Do you hide? Do you run? But here's the thing. God's presence has already been felt in Jerusalem. And for those of you who don't know, Jerusalem is already pretty high. And so David has to, if he's going to escape from God vertically, he's going to have to go even higher than Jerusalem. And so he, he surmises, he takes us to the extreme and says, if he were even to go uh, to, to soar up into the heavens, look verse 8, if he were to soar up even up to the heavens to flee from God, guess who's already there? Who's already there? And then if he can't go up, maybe he'll go down. Look at verse 9. If he were to sink into the depths of the earth, if he were to go lower than the deepest chasm, the, the Hebrews uh, had this word, uh, this place called Sheol, and it, uh, it, it could have been, it, it's real shadowy. We, we don't know exactly what they thought about it, but it, was, it could have been the abyss. It could have been uh, the, the lowest chasms in the seabed. But it, it, it's not a place anyone wanted to go. Just, that's the important part. David says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, even if I go to the grave, who's already there? God's already there. So vertically, David concludes, there's no place too high, there's no place too low that he can go to escape God's hand. So then he goes horizontal in verse 9, he says, <clears throat> that if he, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea. Now, on our uh, on our uh, eastern ridge, we have mountains on the horizon, and we also have an abundance of clouds that really make for lazy, hazy sunrises. You, you have to you have to coax the sun out like a frightened puppy. It does not want to come out but if you remember from our time in Psalm 19 Psalm 
19, what does the sun run like? It runs like, like the strong man running his course. Remember, there, there's a sense of ta-da to the, to the sun coming out. And David, uh, David likens that to, uh, likens its sudden appearance to a frightened bird taking flight. And he says, if I like the sun shooting up in the east, if I, if I were to take the wings of the dawn and be beginning in the east from Jerusalem, and he were to fly all the way to the west, to the body of water on the west of Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, if he were to settle in the uttermost parts of the sea, that way or that way, guess who's already there? God is already there. And in the old world, <coughs> the sea is it, it's associated with danger and chaos and death, much like Sheol, which is why so many uh, scholars think that these are interchangeable. I mean, how many narratives in the Bible involve people getting into a boat only to sail into a storm? And that didn't turn out well for Job, did it? No matter where he goes, God is already there. Now, verse 10 introduces a very important shift in David's expression, and I don't want anyone to miss this. <coughs> Up until now, David has essentially <coughs> said, from heaven to hell, from east in the morning to the west at dusk, no matter how fast, how far I might go, there is absolutely... Nowhere, there is absolutely no place I can go to escape from being under the palm of God. From, 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 this, from being encompassed, from being besieged or surrounded by God's presence and, and his knowledge. In, in one sentence, he's saying, I cannot escape God's captivity. And up until here, <coughs> you can't help but want to stop David mid-sentence and say, Hey, David, it, it sounds like you are uh, quite frightful of this God who knows you so well, who holds his hand over you, who, who follows you like an oppressive hawk. And perhaps David can't take any more being ambiguous uh, or surmising if he could somehow escape from God. And here he uses different verbs to tell us most Certainly, he is glad that he cannot escape from God. And the last place any man ever wants to be in the middle of the chaotic, unpredictable, unrelenting sea, where the forces of water make men and giant boats look like little playthings. David says, even there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Is it that apparent? I worked at the post office for a, for a year in snow and rain and hail and whatever that motto goes, working long hours. Didn't get sick once. I go to Shepherd's Conference, I get sick. Thank you. So, in, in the middle of the sea, chaotic. Undesirable place, chaotic, deadly. David says, even there, even there, where, where, I, where no man would ever go in his right mind, in the uttermost part of the sea, there your hand will lead me and your right hand will guide me. And there's two things that can't escape our attention. One, this word for hand, it's not God's palm. But this time it's the, it's the word for hand and it also includes 
the, the, the forearm. So this isn't about being cupped by God. This isn't about being besieged or encamped by God. This is being led by God's might, by his strength, by his, you, you look, it says, it says in his, uh, his right hand will hold me. That's, that's a sign of favor. <laughs> and what does God's might, what does God's strength do if it doesn't encamp, if it doesn't besiege David, what does it do? Look at the verse. It leads. It leads. And this would bring up images of the Exodus with God leading and guiding his people, not just to the wilderness, but through the wilderness to the promised land. It's, this word for lead me is the word used in Psalm 23 3. It has a shepherding feel to it, it has a nice, warm, comforting feel to it. And David says, even there in the raging storm, your hand, your mighty right hand will shepherd me. <coughs> the believer should feel the attitude when he thinks about God in this way, having, having that kind of a presence, having that kind of knowledge of his people. The believer should say, if my God is like that God, then I'm good. That's who my God is, and that's what my God does. I'm good. Verse 10, even there your right hand will lay hold of me. Even, even hopelessly lost, God's comforting leading hand would keep David. That's so good, isn't it? What a comfort for God's people to know that no matter how remote, no matter how dark a place, God holds you firmly. So good to know. He holds you fast. Isn't that what our souls long for when we're in that dark place? Now, scholars, <clears throat> Bible scholars don't know for certain what the darkness is. It could be literally darkness as in the opposite part of the day cycle. But it could be used to describe to evil or the cause of evil or the effects of evil or harm. But whatever it is, it's not something David wants. It's not something anybody wants. But look at what the darkness does. Look at verse 11. <coughs> Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. It's darkness that crushes, it harasses, it brings down, it throws into pandemonium, it overwhelms, and it makes the day become like the night. Now when that hits you, when chaos and crisis hits you and it, it crushes you, that the word could be crush or, or bruise, that word for overwhelm, it, it, it could be bruise, but I, I think the word crush is better. When it cripples you, David says, your God will keep you fast. Your God will keep you fast. Well, how, how can he do that? He explains in verse 12. Because the darkness is not dark to God. That which cripples us, that which terrifies us, is not crippling or terrifying to God. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. The things that cripple and crush us don't cripple or crush God. We must recognize how much how much higher and how much unlike us God is and how good it is 
that God is higher and unlike us. Otherwise, what? He would be subject to the same frustrations, to the same problems as we are. So David says God possesses and exercises a perfect knowledge and a perfect presence in his life. And no matter where he goes, no matter where he is, David reminds himself of God's perfect power. Now, why are these things true of God? Why why does God know us so well? Why is he always with us? And I'm not not asking you to answer metaphysically how can God do it, but, but why ethically? The psalm begs the question, why does God put up with David? Why does God put up with me? Why does God put up with you? Why? We see that verse 13 begins with a four. This is a this is a a, 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 a causal word or, or an explanation. David is telling us why he's he's giving us a, a because. He says, "For or because you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb." Now, the inward parts literally means uh, kidneys. You created my kidneys. Isn't that a wonderful image? But the the kidneys really meant the whole self. You know, in, in Hebrew and Greek, the innards uh, were, were used to refer to the whole self in the in the way that we might say that our heart is is, is where our mind is or where the the seat of our emotions <clears throat> are. So so David understands the physical mechanics of of natural reproductive um, stuff, but uh, w- w- he he's giving uh, credit to God. He is saying that ultimately. You know, I was made by mom and dad. Yeah, but God is the cause for me being made. God is the cause for me being made. And then he focuses on his body and he, and he, he brings up the care and the skill that went into uh, God making him. He says, you wove me in my mother's womb. This word for, for, for wove or weave. It's, it has to do with mixing materials in, in an orderly and precise way. This isn't like <clears throat> this isn't like um, modern cooking class at the junior high where you just get a mixing bowl and throw everything in microwave two minutes you're you're good. This is this is things that have to be done with precision, with order, with with skill, with uh, a sense of time and patience and precision. And David reflects that all these things went into God making him. He sees himself as a work of art. He says, For I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful on your works. And this isn't David going off on an ego trip. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at I'm amazing. Look at me. Look at what I can do. Now he's not he's not he's this isn't an ego trip. It's not look at what I can do, but David has this sober reminder that that, that almighty, infinite, eternal God was personally involved in making him. You know, this, this isn't the, the God of deism that you know wound up Adam and Eve and set them down like those little um, um, toys that kind of just go off and then he goes off and takes a celestial nap. God had personal involvement in, in, in making him. Now this isn't 
this isn't the point of this text, but I did want to say that this psalm does give us directive on how to think about two social issues, and I will not belabor the point, but evolution and abortion, the fact that David could say God made him with precision and skill tells us that life didn't begin as a simple cell organism or by accident. It happened by design. It happened by skillful intention, by power. And if you read Genesis 1, you get that. But the other point is that if God is personally involved in the making of people, then man shouldn't have the prerogative to play God in the womb. Verse, let's get back to the psalm. Verse 15 <coughs> says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. This skillfully wrought, uh, it, it, it's another weaving uh, word. It, it, it describes a tapestry or a quilt being made, something that requires time and skill and precision. And, and dedication to start and to work on and to bring to a state of completion. This isn't like an instantaneous act. It's an ongoing act, like, like, like one makes a quilt or, or a tapestry. And what's David's point here? What, what's he getting at? <clears throat> Why talk about all the time and, uh, and effort and energy and skill going into God making him? His point is that if God has gone through all that time and effort, if God has made an investment in the, in the formation and the creation of the believer, then the believer should not worry that God will any time abandon him because he's precious to God. You see that? The believer is precious to God. Look at verse 16. Even when God was still putting David together in the womb, when David had, a, as he says, a, an unformed substance, in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So God has made David, he's fashioned David, he's put a lot of investment and into David and he has a purpose for David and he's ordained for David where he is to go and what he's to do and when it will be time for to call him home and David's point is that there's absolutely nothing that will get in the way of that there's nothing that will interrupt God's plans for David all his days have been laid out in God's book so then why is God's power perfect well I say it's perfect in the sense that God doesn't need anything outside of himself to do it. We've looked at a lot of psalms that talk about God's power, how he has this, this, uh, this unparalleled might, he, this unparalleled intensity, this directedness. But here David talks about God's power being perfect, that, that what he has begun in the life of the believer, what he has begun in the lives of his people, he will most certainly bring to fruition. He will complete what he started, and he doesn't need any outside help. He doesn't need a backup plan. He doesn't need to hit pause. He doesn't need to go back to the drawing board. God is perfectly suitable and adept to finish what 
he started. His power is perfect. Philippians 1.6 in the New Testament says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is a perfect power. It's a power not lacking anything. There's no substitute. There's no alternative. There's no third-party distributor for that kind of power. God's power is sufficient for you. And God began showing you this power and his goodness before you were even born. He showed it to all believers in the womb. He's been showing it up until now in your life, and surely he will show it to you in your days to come. And for you as the believer, most certainly in that day when Christ returns, when Christ promises that all those who lean and trust in him, he will raise up. That's when God's power will be completed in you. For what he's doing in you now, it's perfect and, and perfectly suitable, but it will be completed in that day. A believer ought never to fear that God will abandon him because the believer is precious to God. David continues, verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You see this? Do you see this? This sheer, utter worship in David—that God would have thoughts of goodwill and good intention towards him. That there would be so many of them, and how precious it is to David that the infinite God thinks about. Him, that he that God thinks about doing good for David. I mean, no no valuable, no 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 pleasure, no service, no nothing that this world has to offer can compare with that. So David has reminded himself and, and us that God perfectly knows his people, that he has a perfect presence in their lives. Why? Because he's exercised a perfect power in their lives, first beginning from the day of inception, that will go unfordable until the day that we all go to be with Christ in heaven. And in all this, in all that, we can say, along with David, that God has a perfect prerogative. God has a perfect prerogative. And a prerogative is, is, is a right that one has. So, so the right that God has to do as he does is perfect. Verse 19, David breaks into an imprecatory prayer. And this is, this is like a rude interruption. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Isn't that a little unsettling? I mean, come on, David. We were enjoying this nice little ride. I mean, we, we, we were enjoying this nice, beautiful stroll through the countryside and you know, this nice little homily of yours about how God is everywhere. And, you know, sure, he's, you know, it's a little intimidating at first, but you, you said that, that you, you, you are comforted by his presence. But why did you have to bring up the, the, the angry stuff, the, the, the contentious stuff? Well, often we don't know what to do with passages like these. There are hymnals that will edit, <clears throat> they will edit parts of the Psalms like these out. 
And um, last I checked, I haven't, I've never gotten a Christmas card with, oh God, that you would slay the wicked on it. But we, we don't know what to do with these kind of passages. And this reminds me <coughs> of an old Snoopy cartoon where uh, Linus, and Luce, uh, Linus is with Lucy and, and Linus is eating a, a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And as, as he's holding his sandwich, he, he begins to think about his hands. And he says to Lucy, you know, I think I have nice hands. I have a lot of character. Why, someday these hands... They might write soul-stirring novels. They might hit home runs. They might build bridges. They may heal the sick. And then he gets up in Lucy's face and he says, Someday these hands could change the course of destiny. And, and he squeezes that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And Lucy looks at his hands and goes, They've got jelly on them. And we come to this psalm that is, where David is pleading for vengeance and justice, and we don't know what to do with it because it's covered in jelly. We don't realize that God works through the jelly to accomplish his sovereign plan. And because we don't know what to do with it, we, 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 we avoid it, we, we, we ignore it, we go around it, we skirt it. But church, I want you to see that it is so very important that we leave this last strophe, these last six verses, that we leave them precisely where they are and that we take its psalm in its entirety, even, even the parts with jelly. Well, why? Because <clears throat> David is telling us precisely why he needs to be reminded that God's perfect perception and why God's perfect presence and power are so precious to him. Look at verse 19. He's in trouble. David is in trouble. There are men of bloodshed. Men who are out for blood. Who, whose blood? David's blood. David is God's anointed king and there was for a long time no shortage of people who wanted to kill David who wanted to usurp the throne, take the throne, sell the throne to the next guy, that these are outright cold-blooded killers. Not only are they David's enemies, they are God's enemies. Look at verse 20. They speak wickedly against you, and they take your name in vain. Now, there are three things that, get, that, that David does here that are, that are good for him to do and, and good for us to do especially in light of his reminders of, that he gave us in the first 18 verses. One, he entrusted vengeance to God. He entrusted vengeance to God. Look at verse, verses 19 and 20. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with turning the other cheek. I mean, this is, <clears throat> this is outright persecution. This is when people want to destroy you, when... These are people that want to cause David immense harm, where serious damage is not just a, a real possibility, it's an inevitability. So what, what is the believer to do? Well, pray that the Lord might save, save the evildoer. I mean, that worked for Paul, didn't it? Or Saul. Pray that the Lord might drive them away. But David is saying, if, they, if, these, if there are men who are bent, who are determined on destroying with you... You plead with God to intervene on your behalf. 
And this is something that the New Testament tells us too. Romans 12:18 to 19. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but here it is. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he goes on in the next chapter to explain that God has established government for the purpose of punishing the evildoer. Entrust vengeance to God. Don't The believer ought not to go out and, and try to acquire, take, or seize his own vengeance. Entrust vengeance to God. So in addition to doing that, he, verses 21 to 22, he also distances himself <coughs> from God's enemies. He says, verse 21, do I, not, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And this is, this is a rhetorical question. Again, of course he does. Now this word for, for hate, I think reject would be a, a better translation. David is saying that he rejects those who rejects God. And hate, the, when he says that those who hate you, the way he's describing uh, uh, these people that he rejects, this is, uh, this is called a participle. This, this is a verbal noun. And I, I, I know you all are thinking, oh, goody, he's getting into the grammar stuff. Yes, right? No. But the purpose of this, the, the, what a participle does, when it's, when it's functioning as a noun, it, it's a verb, but when it's functioning as a noun, what it's doing is it's, giving you the chief descriptor or the chief quality or the chief characteristic by which that thing is known. So when it says, those, uh, the, it could be translated, the hating God ones or those who hate God. What do you think is the chief descriptive? What's the one thing, if you're going to walk away, what's the one thing you need to know about these people that David rejects? They, they reject God. They hate God. That, that's what they do. It's not, just, it's not just a flippant decision like, well, do I want a blueberry scone or do I want a pumpkin scone? No, this, this is what they do. This is who they are. And David says those, the men who are like that, who make a lifestyle of, of hating God and rejecting God, I do not associate with them. I reject them. Do I not? And then he, he continues, do I not loathe those who rise, rise up against you? Now, this word loathe, this, this is stronger than hate. This, this, is, this brings more emotion into it. He loathes those who rise up against you. David's point is the believer is not to be yoked with people like that. The believer is not to be yoked with people like that. Why? Because bad company corrupts good character, doesn't it? You see that David doesn't want to hinder his walk with God. Because of that desire, he, third, prays that he would remain <coughs> faithful. Verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, we've looked at those two verbs already. They started off the psalm. And we, 
We've gone along with David. We already know that God know, already knows David's heart and thoughts. But look, what does he add? What's the new verb? What's the new request? Or, 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 the, or rather, the new action? He asks God to try me. This, <coughs> this means to, to test. This means to evaluate. It, this is the word describing the, the, the tempering uh, manner of removing impurities from molten metal and, and removing the impurities and and what you get afterwards is a, is a refined metal it's a stronger metal it's a it's a higher quality metal and w- so what do you think the dross is that David is concerned that may be in his heart what is it that David wants God to scoop away from his heart look, look at the end of verse 23 Anxious thoughts, moments of doubt, moments of temptation. These never happen to, to Christians, do they? Uh, nah, we're way beyond that. Of course they do. And David is calling us to pray that God would refine us in those moments. And how does God refine us? He does it by... Uh, not, 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 sometimes by miraculously rescuing us from distress, sure. But most of the time, God's people are what? What does First Peter one tell us? First Peter one seven. That we are refined through trials. We are refined through suffering. Suffering refines our faith. Enduring through suffering and enduring through hardship and duress and looking to your heavenly father and trusting in him to sustain you or deliver you is precisely the means that he uses to demonstrate his power to you in those very things do you see that god's people pray that they would remain faithful and if there are any anxious thoughts in david's heart or as he says in verse 24 if there is a hurtful way that is ways of life that would cause that would lead David to painful consequences because they are unrighteous because they are unwise because they are ungodly he prays lead me in the way everlasting the way that endures the way that is righteous the lead me in the way that reflects you O Lord that's David's prayer do you see the importance of leaving this last Six verses in, in this psalm. You see the found, that, that they serve as the foundation, the, the jelly of, of David's uh, problems is the, is the foundation. It's the context in which this psalm and David's reminding himself of, of God and, his, and his, his, his knowledge of David and his presence in David's life and his power. And they all serve to remind David of the way God works and the way that God works is always good. That his prerogative is perfect. So I must ask you, in all, in all seriousness and sobriety, do you know this God? Do you? One thing that this psalm unmistakably tells us is that the believer is comforted by who God is. The the believer is comforted by these truths. But what if, 
What if this unrelenting, all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present God worries you? What if these qualities that he alone possesses, what if they cause you alarm? What if they cause you unease or fear or worry or guilt? Friend, do you hear him calling you to be reconciled to him? To be forgiven of your sins, to become his friend? Because if so, the way to do that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says that he who has seen me has seen the Father. And if you want to see this God of Psalm 139, if you want to see this awesome, awesome startling, wonderful God, you go to his son. For those believers who may not sometimes feel like God is present in their lives, that God is not near in times of trouble and times of heartache, beloved, do you you not see that there's a reason David had to remind himself of that God is present and God does know and God is able in everything he does? And when he chooses not to act, that it is good and perfect. Regardless of how you feel about God's presence, friend, know that God is there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. For coming down to our level or rather, sending your Son, who wrapped himself in flesh and came down to our level and became one of us, subject to all of the things that we are tempted by, bore the things that we are grieved by, suffered the things we are tempted by, is acquainted with our sorrows, and in all things was tempted just like we are. And yet he was without sin in all things. And because you are kind and merciful, because of your plan to save a people for yourself, your son willingly, out of love for you, gave himself so that your justice might be satisfied and that we might be reconciled to you, so that your righteousness and your mercy might be known to, to the whole cosmos. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for giving us the means to be comforted by your awesome presence. Please bless Pastor Carl as he's gone and and those who are ill. uh, Thinking of Daniel, please uh, grant him uh, healing as well as my friend Nathan. Amen.